If you've been a parent for more than uh, 10 minutes, you've probably made a mistake. <laughs> and uh, this past week, we had an epic parenting fail in our house, so I want to tell you about it. Our girls went back to school, and uh, Madeline's starting in kindergarten this fall, which is a big deal. It's a full day. It's, it's, a, it's a lot for her, and she's done fantastic. Many of you have been praying, and we're grateful. And her first day in the Liverpool School District was Thursday. Well, somehow along the way, we had it locked into our heads that all three of our girls were starting school on Thursday. And we were sitting, the girls were asleep, and it was Tuesday night, 10 p.m., and her and I were sitting on the couch together, and she's got her phone in her hand, and she, all of a sudden, I hear her go, oh, my. And she realizes somebody had posted something online that the girls' school started Wednesday, the next day. So it's 10 p.m., we're realizing the girls have to go to school tomorrow. They're already asleep, so we can't tell them. And so Aaron immediately jumps up, starts making their lunches. I go plug in Lilia's laptop so that she'll have it to bring to school with her. And, and, and Aaron's pulling their outfits. And, and we're just thinking, they're going to wake up tomorrow morning thinking it's their last day of summer vacation. And we got a surprise for them. So Caroline was the first one up. And she comes into our room, and we started to break the news to them. Now, thankfully, our girls actually love school. So they took it, they took it pretty well. They took it like a champ. But, but uh, it, it, was a, it was one of those moments where we're like, this is not like us. And you, you have those moments. And, and we're worried that the girls would wake up expecting one thing, and then they would experience something else. Now, what do you do when something doesn't go the way you thought it would go? When, when you wake up and it's not, life is not the way you thought it should be or the world is different, you're disappointed, you're discouraged. Maybe you went to a restaurant, you were excited about the meal and then you got the meal and you're like, oh, it's such a disappointment. Or maybe a vacation you were gonna take that you thought was gonna be the best vacation ever and then you get there and the weather doesn't cooperate and, and things aren't what you thought they would be. Or maybe the place you were gonna stay isn't as nice as it looked like it was going to be on the internet. Or maybe you've had a relationship at some point in your life, a romantic relationship or a friendship that you thought, this is going to be great, and it just didn't end great. What do you do when you're discouraged, when you're disappointed? That's exactly where we find the Israelites at this point in their history. They've been allowed to return from Babylon. Babylon was defeated by Persia, and the new, ruler of, uh, the new ruler's name was Cyrus, and he said to the Jews, you can go back to your home. And 50,000 Jews went back to Jerusalem so excited, thinking this is going to be great. We're going to be back home. We're not going to be under the control of Babylon or under the control of Persia anymore. They're expecting great things, but they get back to Jerusalem, and guess what? Things didn't go that way. Nothing was the same. You ever have that experience? You go back to somewhere that you remember from your childhood, and you're like, wow, nothing's the same. Isn't everything bigger in your mind as a kid? You think of the backyard you grew up in and you think it was enormous and you go back and see it years later and it's like, this is the same place? This experience the Israelites are having, they're back in Jerusalem, it's the same place, but it's not the same place. There's no temple. The city is slowly being rebuilt, but it's not fully rebuilt. They're still actually under the control of another nation, even though they're allowed to live in their own land. Persia rules them. Persia's strategy was different than Babylon's. They let the Jews go back but they taxed them heavily. Persia was in a significant war at that time with Egypt, and so they would tax the Jews to fund their campaign. <coughs> and the Jewish people, who used to be the world power, one of the world powers now, feel seemingly insignificant in a world that is passing them by. And it's into this world that the prophet Zechariah begins to speak. And Zechariah, what I love about this man is that he addresses this discouragement. This, we see how Zechariah addresses those who feel defeated, discouraged, disappointed, disenfranchised. The way he does it is really unusual. Now, I just want to be honest with you. This is one of the weirdest books in the Old Testament. 
When I started studying it this week, I was like, how am I going to preach this book, period? But how am I going to preach it in one week? First off, it's 14 chapters long, which is on the long side of things for a minor prophet. But he also, Zechariah's primary communication is not teaching or prophecy, it's visions. God would give Zechariah visions, and then he would communicate these visions to the people. And Zechariah, right at the heart of the book of Zechariah, is eight visions. And believe me, one is weirder than the next. They are strange visions. And we do believe as a church that God can speak to people this way through dreams and through visions. And this is how he speaks to Zechariah. And and we're going to look at these eight visions, not all of them, but I want you to notice, I think I have a slide that I've created here. Zechariah has eight visions. And and, and the way that they're presented to us is what's called a chiastic style, which was a Hebrew poetry uh, tool, where basically the outer um, visions corresponded together, and then the middle two, and then the next two. So one and eight have the same theme, two and seven have the same theme, three and six have the same theme, and then visions four and five, and it sort of steps up in its intensity, and there's a sort of a culmination moment there in visions four and five. And that's what we're going to do this morning, is we're really going to focus in on vision four and a little bit of vision five, and we're going to begin in Zechariah chapter three. And so uh, we're going to read verses one through three. I'm reading to you from the ESV. And this is Zechariah's vision. It says, Then he showed me, he being God, through a vision. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. If you were here last week when we studied Haggai, you learned that there was two main leaders for the Jewish people at this time. Zerubbabel was the governor, and Joshua was the high priest. So this is a real person in this vision. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this, he's speaking of Joshua, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel and he was clothed with filthy garments. A few things we're going to learn about how God encouraged how God encouraged his people then through Zechariah and how he still encourages us today. And the first thing is this, God stands against the accuser. He stands against the accuser. Now this vision is located in a heavenly courtroom. Did you notice the angel of the Lord is seated as judge? Joshua, the high priest, who's one of the leaders, he's the defendant. And who is the prosecutioner? Who's the prosecutor? It's, it's, it's Satan. Now, something real quick here here, this word Satan that Zechariah uses, this is not a personal name, this is a position. So we don't know if this is actually Satan, the, the sort of who we understand him to be. Really, another way to interpret this is that he is the adversary or he is the accuser. So whenever you see Satan in this vision, you really can also think the accuser. So here he is accusing Joshua, and Joshua has an important role. Joshua, as the high priest at this time, he's the one who represents the people of Israel to God. He's the one that goes before God and makes sacrifices on their behalf so that their sins can be forgiven and that they can be right before a holy God. This is Joshua's role. That's a pretty important role, right, to be that person who does that. And the accuser comes up against Joshua, and he has actually a really strong case. Because Joshua is not only wearing filthy garments, but if you, stu- if you study and understand the Hebrew, what it actually says here is that his garments are soiled with excrement or feces. He's not just dirty. He's covered in his own filth and his own waste, which would automatically defile the person who's wearing it. Their ceremonial cleanliness was a big deal to the Jewish people. And just one little speck of dirt 
would have been enough to keep the high priest from the presence of God, but to be wearing robes that were soiled with your own feces. I mean, this is a picture of this. Joshua has no case here. He's standing on trial, and all the evidence is stacked against him. Joshua's defilement is a big problem for the people because, like I said, he's the one that's supposed to help them with their defilement. He's supposed to go before God on their behalf and help them be forgiven of their defilement. And how can he do that when he's so terribly defiled by his own filth? Now think of what's happened to the people of Israel in the recent years and what this filth maybe represents. They had been unfaithful to the covenant, right? God had sovereignly and graciously chose them and they had chose other gods. They had executed terrible injustices against each other. They had enslaved each other and the rich had exploited the poor and people were taking advantage of other people. They had lost their identity as the people of God. They had been dragged off into exile. They had lost their mission. And I wonder sometimes, what were those years like in Babylon? We know a little bit because we know Daniel in the lion's den, and we know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But think about the story of the three Hebrew boys for a second. Nebuchadnezzar had a large, temp, a lot, a large statue built. He said, when the music plays, everybody bows. Everybody bows. How many people stood according to the story? Just the three. So where were all the Israelites? They were bowing. What do you think happened to the Israelites when they were in Babylon? You know, there's a saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I wonder if they came back from Babylon. They're like, hey, what happened in Babylon stays in Babylon. Let's not talk about how much pork we ate in Babylon. Let's not talk about this, that, and the other, right? Let's get back. And, and I, this sort of way in which they probably further compromised themselves. Now, of course, there were some faithful of the remnant, like a Daniel, who stood strong. And there were others, I'm sure, beyond Daniel. But many of them lost their sense of identity, self, purpose, and mission while they're in Babylon. Now, they are, here they come now. They come limping back to Jerusalem with all the memories of Babylon in their mind, probably wondering, has that disqualified us? Are we still his people? Can we still approach him? And they're back, and they're, in their, and they're in Jerusalem, but it's been 20 years since they've gotten back, and there's still no temple. And you have Joshua, a high priest, without a temple. Joshua is given a task to bring sacrifices on the behalf of the people, and he hasn't been able to do it in the way that God wants him to do it for 20 plus years. This is where they're at. And this is the view we get in this vision, covered in filth, inadequate, not good enough, uh, ashamed, uh, sinful. But what's amazing is what should happen is the the courtroom scene should play out, and they should say, yes, he's guilty. Well, that's not what happens. What happens? We read it. The Lord steps up and he rebukes the accuser. And he rules, I love this, he rules Satan's charges inadmissible before he could even present them. He said, I know you got a lot to say about Joshua, but guess what? I won't hear any of it. I rebuke you and I rebuke everything you have to say. And here's what God is essentially saying about the Jewish people. He's saying, I chose them and I saved them so you can't say anything about them. You don't have the final word on them because they don't belong to you, they belong to me. And that's what it meant when God said, isn't this like a brand who was plucked from the fire? He's saying, I saved them out of the fire so they're free from condemnation because they belong to me. Now listen, today in our lives, what does this have to do with us? Well, you know, there's still an accuser, isn't there? There's still an accuser. Have you ever heard the voice of the accuser? It might sound a lot like yourself. It might sound like people in your life. It might have sounded like a parent. It might sound like someone that you love and you're in a relationship with, the voice of the accuser. In fact, when we get to the end of the scriptures in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, 
It says, John has this vision, and he says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of Christ has come, and listen to what he says here, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. This is in the future, Revelation chapter 12. So what does it mean? There's still an accuser. There's still one who wants to accuse you, who wants to remind you of the things that you've done wrong, who wants to accuse you before the Lord. And there are accusing voices in our lives. And you've heard it. People, in your, in your mind, you, you think, because of my past, because of something that happened in my past, I'm not qualified anymore. And you feel accused by what you've done. You feel like you aren't good enough. You feel like life has passed you by. And when you listen to the voice of your accuser, here's what happens. It leads you to insecurity, right? You never feel like you're good enough. You never feel like you've done enough. Even as hard as you try to serve God, you always wonder, is it enough? Because you're trying to balance the scales, but you can't balance the scales. That's not your job. It's not your role. We're going to see there's another person who has balanced that scale for you in your place. It can also lead you to envy, where you feel like, well, other people have what I don't have, and I wish that I had what, what they have. We're spending Wednesday nights in this room talking about contentment, and what's the secret to contentment? We had a great first week this past Wednesday. I invite you all out this Wednesday. Jealousy. And here's the other thing, is that when you believe the lies of the accuser, it will make you ineffective. It'll make you afraid to step out. It'll steal from you joy and peace. And God has a work for us to do, and God had a work for Joshua to do. The temple needed to be rebuilt. And the accuser was trying to stop Joshua from doing the work. Now, Joshua should have been doing it all along, but God doesn't throw that in his face, does he? He simply rebukes the accuser, and we'll see in a minute. He says, I have a work for you to do. God stands against the accuser. When I was in college, I went to um, a Bible school south of Rochester called Elam. And I remember I was hanging out with my friends, and, and when people first meet me, after they get comfortable, they often wonder, what's your ethnicity? Because it's not really obvious, I guess. Um, a lot of times people think I'm Hawaiian or Hispanic or all sorts of Asian. Of course, I'm half Korean. Most of you would know that. And uh, so I was talking with some of my new friends at school, and I was like, yeah, I'm half Korean. And they go, oh, do you know any Korean words? I was like, not, not any good ones. Like, um, <laughs> and so they're like, well, well, well what's, what's one of them? And so I, t I, t I told them the Korean word for butt. Uh, and, I, and, I, and, and, and I started calling the kid by that name. I would call that kid the Korean word for butt. I'm not saying it because I don't want you all running around using it. Um, and uh, so he asks me, and I didn't realize why he was asking me. He says, what's another word you know? And so I told him the Korean word for fart. Uh, and he, he started calling me that. Now, it stuck, and it became my nickname. But before you feel bad for me, or, or maybe you don't feel bad for me, because I, I guess I did this myself, um, 95% of the people who called me that nickname didn't know what the word meant. They just thought it was my nickname. And so my whole freshman year at Bible college, people didn't call me David. They called me the Korean word for flatulence, <laughs> which I was fine with. It's kind of a cool-sounding word, so I was okay with it. It didn't really bother me. However, that summer when I went home, one of my friends called the house looking for me. And my mom answered the phone. <laughs> of course, my mom is Korean, so... so he said, hi is my nickname. So here's what it sounded like to my mom. Hi, is fart there? <laughs> and my mom, to say the least, was not happy with this development. <laughs> and here's what I remember her saying. I gave him a name. 
and his name is David, and it means beloved. And I, you know, and I, and I'm thinking like, I don't know if you said this or not, but you know, I carried him for nine months, and he was ten pounds three ounces, and I birthed him, and I raised him, and I fed him, and I've loved him, and I've prayed for him, and I've invested in him, and this is his name, this is who he is. You're not going to come along and give him a new name. You're not going to come along and call him something else. And I have this sense in this story that this is God's heart when He looks at His people. He says, "I love these people. I rescued them." I've fed them, I've raised them, I've invested them, I've placed my image in them. You, the enemy, you're not gonna come along and define them. You're not gonna give them a new name, you're not gonna tell them who they are. I'm the one who gets to decide who they are. I chose them and I saved them. No one gets to define the one who belongs to me. And if you trust in Jesus, you belong to Jesus. And no one else gets to define who you are. And no one else gets to decide your destiny, your future, where you're headed because God has a plan and purpose for you. And regardless of how filthy you may feel at times before him, we're gonna see in a moment that he does something. He speaks against the accuser. Romans 8, 1, beautiful verse that Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Jesus Christ, there's nothing about your past that the enemy can condemn you about. Now let me say this, there is a difference between conviction and condemnation, right? So you can't take this message at this point and say, see, I should never feel bad about anything I do. No. Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of conviction is to cause us to turn to Jesus. But condemnation comes from the accuser of our souls. And the purpose of condemnation is to get us to hide from Jesus, right? Two very different things. So conviction is something we should actually be grateful for. We should thank God for. Where would we be without the Holy Spirit's conviction? Can you imagine if the Holy Spirit wasn't convicting you? And one great prayer to pray for yourself and other people is this. God, keep my spirit sensitive to your Holy Spirit's conviction. Let me be so responsive. That's what made David a man after God's own heart. Not that he had his act together. He didn't have his act together, but that he was responsive to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Conviction will always cause you to run to Jesus. Condemnation will always cause you to run from Jesus. And, and, and conviction is about what you've done. Condemnation is about who you are, right? So it's one thing to feel guilt good guilt, spiritual guilt that leads to repentance about what you've done. It's another thing to feel shame about who you are. And the Holy Spirit is never looking to lead you into shame about who you are, but he will at times lead you into conviction about what you've done. We embrace the conviction, we reject the condemnation because he speaks against the accuser. The second thing we see in this is that God speaks for the accused. Let's read together some more of this passage. The vision goes on. So remember, Joshua's standing there. He's clothed with filthy garments, and it says this in verse four. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. I want you to notice, he did not tell Joshua, remove your filthy garments. Why? He couldn't do it for himself. He needed someone else to do it. Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, now he's speaking directly to Joshua, who represents the people of Israel. Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments, pure clothes. So he doesn't just take away the filthy garments. He covers him in pure garments. And he said, let them put a clean turban on his head. Different commentators say different things about this turban, that it speaks of authority and power. But also there was, in history at that time, people would put turbans on at times to get to work. So it was also an indicator that, Joshua, I've not just clothed you with my righteousness, but I have a work for you to do. 
So they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. You'll, You'll have access to God. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, we'll get to this in a minute, but he's now beginning to prophesy about Jesus. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. There's so much here, but what I want us to notice is this, that God speaks up for the accused. Aren't you glad he speaks for you? That you don't have to speak for yourself? I think of this scene in The Lion King, one of my favorite scenes where young Simba and Nala have wandered off where they shouldn't be. And the hyenas have found them and they're surrounding them and they're threatening that they're going to eat them and, and kill them. And Simba, trying to be brave, tries to roar. But he's just a little, little guy. And so he's he's got this little pathetic little roar. And the hyenas are rolling on their backs, laughing, and just saying, oh, that's your roar, that's all you got. And he roars once, and it's pathetic. And he tries to roar again, and it's terrible. And then the third time he roars, it's like, it's this huge roar. And I think it even startles Simba. And what's happened is his dad, Fasa, is behind him now. And he's roaring for him, through him. And this is what happens here. God begins to roar for his person, for his people. He begins to speak for the accused. He doesn't just speak, but he makes an action. He acts to cleanse Joshua from his iniquity. I love this. He commands his servants to remove the filthy garments. Remember, we can't remove our own filthiness. We can't remove our own sin. We need God to do that for us, to act on our behalf, and then to give us garments uh, to cover us in the sort of pure garments that make us suitable to enter the presence of the king of kings. And since the filthy garments represent iniquity, the pure vestments that Joshua is given, they represent, listen to this, a new righteousness that's been imputed to Joshua. So Joshua now has a new righteousness. He stands right before God because he has new clothes on and they're clean and they're not covered with filth and they're not covered with his feces. They're perfect. And it gives him access. And he says, you can come now before me with confidence and with boldness because you're covered in my righteousness. And what we see at the heart of this vision is that Joshua has the same problem that every human being has. It's called the problem of righteousness. How do we get right in God's eyes? Righteousness simply understood is right standing. How do we have the approval of God? How can we get the acceptance of God? And how can we have access to God? And every religion offers you different ways to get it. Some religions, it's very work-based. Make sure you do this, and make sure you do that. Make sure you show up at this, and say this, and say that. And it gives you a bunch of steps to take, a bunch of hoops to jump through. But Christianity is so radically different than that. Christianity doesn't say, here's what you can do to make yourself righteous. Christianity points you to a work that's been done for you and says, here's what's been done for you to make you righteous. The heart of the gospel is not achieve righteousness. The heart of the gospel is receive righteousness. And that's how we solve the problem of righteousness. In all of our lives, we go looking for righteousness. Now, we wouldn't call it righteousness, but if I use the other words, approval, acceptance, and access, think about all the pursuits of your life, from relationships 
to the way you look, to what you wear, to your careers. Think of everything you've done. The truth is, is that all of us are pursuing somebody's approval, somebody's acceptance, access to something that we feel like we're on the outside of. It's a difficult way to live. Now, why do we live that way? Because in our hearts, God has placed within us this sense that we belong to him. And we won't be satisfied with anything less than him. And we'll always be a slave to the approval. And so you go through your life, and as you get older, you're, 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 the target that, that you're aiming for it changes and it shifts, but the heart never really changes. And only in experiencing what God has done for us by clothing us with his righteousness that brings us the approval and the acceptance and the access based on his work, that's how we find peace. And that's how we solve, or more, not we solve, but that's how God solved our problem of righteousness. Someone has to act on our behalf. Someone has to speak for the accused. We're the accused. We're Joshua in this story, covered in robes that are filthy. Someone has to speak for us. Well, who is going to do that? And that's what we see here when it reads, when we get to the word that says, the branch in verse eight. The branch refers back to prophecies in Jeremiah. And listen to this carefully. The Lord has already said through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 22, 30, that none of King Jehoiakim's seed would sit on his throne. God was fed up with the kings of this earth and he said, none of the seed of Jehoiakim's uh, are gonna sit on the throne. But then three chapter, or one chapter later in Jeremiah 23, five, he promises to raise up a righteous branch for David in other words, the Messiah who would come to establish justice and salvation for his people. So when, when Zacharias sees in this vision, hears in this vision that there's a branch coming, yes, it may speak of a future king, a leader in Israel's uh, lifetime, but it most importantly speaks of Jesus who's coming to be that for all of us. The coming branch would definitively remove the iniquity of the land. And I love, did you catch it? When he said we'll remove the iniquity of this land in one day. How powerful is God? Thousands and thousands of years of iniquity or more. And in one day, and in one day, by one act, by the branch, by Jesus, he removed our sins in one day. This is what Jesus did and it results in the blessing of peace and wholeness and hope and righteousness. Right standing before God Because we approach God not in our filthy robes, but in the perfect righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus speaks for us. And what I love is that, you know, Revelation 12.10 I read, it says there's an accuser who accuses us before the Father. But you know, there's someone defending you before the Father. There's an accuser, and guess what else there is? There's an advocate. And the advocate is Jesus. When Jesus died, was buried, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, his work, in one sense, was done, in that he accomplished everything necessary for us to be right before the Father. But he continues a new work. And the work that he does now is he sits at the right-hand side of the Father every day where he lives to make intercession for you. This scene that we see in Zechariah chapter three is playing itself out in heaven for you every day of your life. The accuser is pointing at you and calling you by name and saying, look at this person. Look at what they did this week. They forgot to read their Bibles. They said this in traffic at somebody. They lost their temper. They're struggling with this. They can't get it right. And your advocate faithfully, Jesus Christ, the faithful advocate, the intercessor for your soul is standing before and saying, hey, remove from that person their filthy garments. That's not who they are. They're in me. And cover them with my righteousness, with my garments, so that we have access to the Father because he speaks for the accused. And when this ends, Joshua has a new assignment, 
or he's newly set apart, I should say, and he's reminded of his original assignment. You gotta build the temple. Now, how is Joshua gonna do this? And this is where we get to our last point this morning and we'll close. So God speaks against the accuser. He stands for the accused. And lastly, he strengthens for the assignment. He strengthens for the assignment. And we get to the fifth vision, and we're not gonna spend as much time in the fifth vision, but the fifth vision basically is a vision about the completion of the temple and the fact that Joshua and Zerubbabel are gonna be vital in completing the building of the temple. You see them in these visions as two olive trees who stand strong and are meant to have instrumental roles. But we have this crucial verse in Zechariah chapter four, verses six and seven, I wanna read to you. And, And they're saying, how are we gonna do this work? How are we gonna complete our assignment? And it says that God said to them, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Anybody heard that verse before? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Yes, you're clothed in my righteousness, but you also need my spirit to do the work. Verse seven, who are you, O great mountain? So what can stand before you when the spirit is within you? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone. Now what's the top stone? The top stone is the last stone on the temple. It's the capstone, it's the final stone. He's saying, by the power of my spirit, this is gonna get done. This assignment is gonna be completed. He's gonna put the top stone on it. And what are the shouts gonna be? I love this. Grace. Grace to it. Grace from beginning and grace to the end. Where do we get the power? How does he strengthen us for our assignments? You know, every single one of you has an assignment. As long as we're here, as long as we have breath, you know what that means? There's a work for us to do. Every single one of us has an assignment. Well, where do we find the strength for our assignment? How do we serve God? How do we live holy? How do we embrace our identity? How do we live out our mission? It's right here. It's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by his spirit. It's the spirit of God. And for the Israelites, they needed to build the temple so that the spirit of God could dwell in their midst. But today, where does the spirit of God dwell? Not in, not, he's not in buildings. Where is he? He's within us. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he's given you the spirit to serve him, to love him, to obey him, to live holy, to overcome, to make a difference, to reach people, to make disciples, to see gospel transformation in every life in our area. God's given us his spirit. So here's what he's done for us in summary. He's removed our filthy garments from us. Aren't you thankful? And one day he removed all our iniquities. Secondly, he's clothed us in his righteousness. That garment that he put on Joshua, that he puts on us, it's his garment. He put it on him. He clothes us, and then he gives us his spirit because we have a work to do. We have a great work to do. Listen, as a church, we have a great work to do. 60,000 people in the town of Clay. How many of them this weekend haven't given a single thought to God? How many of them never actually heard an adequate, accurate representation and presentation of the gospel. We have to have a burning in our heart that says it's not okay. Not on our watch. Not while God has placed us here. We're going to do everything we can by his spirit to see every single person experience the goodness of Jesus and see gospel transformation in every area of our lives and every single life in our area. And how are we going to do it? Not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. Let's pray together this morning.